Hey, it's Bill Simmons. Wanted to tell you about House of Carbs, hosted by one of my best friends, Joe House. I've known him since 1988, and the entire time I've known him, he's been very, very hungry. And now he has a chance to host a podcast about being hungry, all the things that make him hungry, the food that he loves. It is a podcast by the hungry, for the hungry. And it's not your typical foofy food podcast where they're talking about foie gras and all that stuff. No, no. We're talking about diners. We're talking about fried chicken sandwiches, pizza slices, best Chinese food. Everything you, everything you talk about with food is on this podcast and with great guests like David Chang, uh, Chris Bianco, Jimmy Kimmel, a bunch of people coming up. All of them love food. Nobody loves food quite as much as Joe House. But listen, check this out. Subscribe right now to House of Carbs wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Brian Curtis. This is the Press Box, your favorite irregularly produced Ringer podcast. Uh, And we're here today with an unusual one because... I wrote a story yesterday about Jamel Hill, and then Jamel Hill became a story, thanks in part to the Trump White House, MAGA Twitter, and other elements. Uh, and we wanted to talk about it more, and so to avoid a Spalding Gray situation of me talking to the microphone, the Ringer's editor and my editor, Sean Fennessy, is here. Brian. How are you, Sean? I wish you would do a Spalding Gray. That would be wonderful. It's too bad. But I'm glad to be here, and I'm glad because I want people to hear about the story that you wrote. And also, I think just having a conversation about what's happening inside of ESPN and maybe what's happening inside the press room at the White House yes. uh, is relevant to the world right now. And how they have somehow come together. It's it's an incredible moment in politics, sports, and media. Yes. And that is sort of your wheelhouse. So what a time for Brian Curtis. What a time for the press box. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so let's let's do a little TikTok to open this show. I assume most people listening right now are aware of what's happened, but let's let's do it anyway. On September 11th, Jamel Hill tweets a response to someone who has tweeted at her and identifies the president, Donald Trump, as a white supremacist. And a bigot and other things, yep. And so when this happens, what, how, what was the response to that initially? Did you, were you aware of this when it first happened? I think it was in the afternoon on on, uh, on September 11th. Barely. Yeah, it seemed like a non-thing, you know, in the in the – Media atmosphere, it's not uncommon for people that are popular on Twitter to call the president a racist, right? In the liberal, in the liberal Twitter, sphere, Twitter sphere that we are both members of, to right. some extent, that is basically the most normal sentiment you could read right now. Exactly. And so before we go any further, let us both disclose we once worked for ESPN there we go. as uh, editors and writers at Grantland. Having said that, ESPN made a choice to respond to Jamel's tweet. And in doing so, I think essentially kicked up a storm. Fair to say? I think so. Uh, they did not suspend Jamel. Uh, she was the plan all along was for her to be on television the next day, which she in fact was. Uh, they called the language, I think it was inappropriate, was the term that they used. But again, and we'll talk about this a little bit more later, within I think the sort of spectrum of ESPN responses to controversy, it was pretty light. Yes. It was a, it was a single statement shared on their. PR platform, essentially. The comments on Twitter from Jamel Hill regarding the president do not represent the position of ESPN. We have addressed this with Jamel, and she recognizes her actions were inappropriate, as you said. So, this was not also not received well, especially on liberal Twitter. And then what happens? So then, uh, a reporter goes to the White House press conference and asks Sarah Huckabee Sanders, reads uh, some of the things Jamel said, excuse me, tweeted, and says, do you have any response to this? And, uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders says 
This is a fireable offense, quote unquote. Imagine that. Imagine that. Seeming to suggest that the Trump administration is recommending that ESPN fire a prominent personality. And the Trump is trying in some way to pick who ESPN puts on the air, which kicks this up to another level. It is national news now. It is now national news, yes. And so yesterday we spent the day hand-wringing our way through whether the president should even be thinking about someone of Jamel Hill's standing. On the ringer side, earlier that morning before Sarah Huckabee Sanders spoke on the issue, you published a feature that you'd been working on about Jamel. Um, Let's talk a little bit about that story and what the person that you found when you visited uh, Bristol, Connecticut in June and, you know, how this story now fits so neatly and coincidentally into the narrative. Well, I think I sent you an email back in April. This is in the shadow of the ESPN layoffs. Daniel Roberts of Yahoo had written this piece, a general piece about ESPN, and found that like half of the 3,000 comments below this piece, which is about layoffs and ESPN navigating through this new media world, were about Michael and Jamel, Mm -hmm. who were not the subject of the piece. And we've all seen, I think, directly or indirectly, them getting lots and lots of crap on Twitter, racist crap and other crap. And so I sent you a note and said, we should do Jamel. We should do a profile of Jamel Hill. She's one of the most interesting people in media right now. And she has weirdly become the focus of all this ESPN hate that's out in the world. And so Michael and Jamel notably in January took over what has been redubbed the six, which is the 6 p.m. Sports Center, which is a very prominent position for years before that. They had been hosts, personalities and writers on ESPN platforms. Tell a little bit about sort of their transition and also how they represent a wider, I think you call them people movers uh, at, at ESPN, <laughs> because because they've had they've both had very similar and interesting paths in media. Yeah, Michael came up through the Boston Globe. Uh, he was originally hired at ESPN as an insider. And then he essentially, he told me this, this wasn't in the piece, was made redundant by the hire of Adam Schefter. So he comes in to break football news for ESPN. And all of a sudden ESPN says, never mind, we got the king insider here. We need to figure out something else for you to do. So he's in this period of wandering. Jamel Hill was brought in to replace Skip Bayless on page two of ESPN. Skip now having become a TV star by this point. She starts doing, she had an early contract where she had something for like 20 TV hits in her contract. She exceeded those immediately on places like Around the Horn and the Sports Reporters and Cold Pizza back in the day. And so all of a sudden, she's a TV person. And they go on this kind of long quest where they know they want to be on TV, but ESPN doesn't want to put them on TV, at least in a permanent position or in a position that they'd like. They eventually land on this show called His and Hers, which is on ESPN2, which they do pretty much whatever they want. Big parodies, talk pop culture, talk social issues. Don't really pay a ton of attention to the news of the day unless they want to. It's all about their relationship. And then as ESPN begins to do things, they say, well, we have a problem at 6 o'clock, which is we, we have the sports center. Uh, highlights are, are degrading. The 6 o'clock sports center never had much news anyway because it was in the weird part of the middle of the day. How are we going to fix this? I know. Let's go to Michael and Jamel, and let's make them the hosts. And that's sort of where we picked up this story. At that point, they, were, they started the day after the Super Bowl, so they're probably three or four months into remaking SportsCenter. And you really go inside the production of an episode of The Six in the story, which I encourage people to read. But you know, let's talk a little bit about what you saw, how they make a show like that, and how their personalities really come out aggressively in that format. The first thing that was a huge surprise was – that it's all about social media. ESPN at this point in history is basically being produced by Twitter, which as people who work at a website, 
Our website is often produced by Twitter. True story. Oh, man, did you see that funny thing today? Can we write something about it? Can we make a joke about it? And it wasn't until I was actually standing in Bristol. And not only was I in the meetings for the six, I would look up at the TV and the video of Clay Thompson dancing in a Chinese nightclub was not only part of the six, it was the lead story on Rachel Nichols' The Jump. And then I would see, like, I'd look up and see Pablo Torre dressed as Evil Knievel on Sports Nation, you know, <laughs> talking about videos on Twitter. And it was that ESPN has kind of become this giant Twitter feed with all these different, funny, unique personalities in mm-hmm. a way. So that was the first big surprise. The second was just watching the two of them try to figure out 6 p.m. Scott Van Pelt told me in the story at midnight at his sports center, I have highlights, they have topics. So if there's a Woj bomb, that's great because they can say, Kyrie Irving, what's going on? Let's debate. Where should he go? What's it, who won the trade? But otherwise, you're kind of trying to figure out what do people want at 6 o'clock? How responsive should we make that to the game that ESPN is showing at 7 o'clock? Should we preview the games? Do people even come home from work and watch SportsCenter anymore? Are they at the gym? Like, who, who is consuming this? I think of all the sports centers, probably 6 p.m. is the trickiest to figure out in this new media world, like, who, who's watching. Yeah, it has been obviated for a lot of people, I think. But then there's obviously also a vocal contingent of people who still use it as a part of their daily media diet. A lot of those people, probably a little bit older, possibly white, and they seem to have a negative reaction to the way that they're doing the show. But I'm curious, from seeing it on the inside, did you sense a creative anguish of any kind with watching them try to put it together? Or did they feel comfortable making the show every day? No, they were, they were totally upfront about creative anguish. I, I never heard either of them crow about how good they thought the show was. I heard them talk at length about how they were trying to figure out what the show was. And at that point, you know, they would sit there and say, well, what do we lead with? Do we lead with something funny? Um, do we lead with topic A? Do we lead with what game ESPN is showing at 7 o'clock? That night, I remember that one of their producers told me he didn't even know what was on at 7 o'clock that night. It turned out it was a baseball game. It was probably, you know, probably would have been a good thing to know. But it was, it was all creative anguish. And it was also how much, how much are we supposed to debate each other? Because that's clearly what ESPN is paying them to do. And how much is Jamel or Michael supposed to hold a piece of paper and say, this just in? The Washington Post reports, blah, 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 on the Redskins logo or something. Right. Um, it's all creative anguish. I mean, and we, we've sensed that that strategy work really well before. Obviously, you know, Mike Wilbon and, and Tony Kornheiser, longtime friends and colleagues, but also willing to sort of uh, put on the persona of disagreement in an effort to make a great show. And PTI has been a huge success for ESPN for decades now. Do Michael and Jamel similarly have to create oppositional forces to make a good show? They don't have to. They're, they're such good friends. They, they met, and this is in the story too, they were actually kind of set up on a kind of a pseudo date back in 2002. They became really good friends when they both joined ESPN a couple of years later. But they're really good when they're at their best. They can take a conversation and make it personal. So, you know, it's like Russell Westbrook, how did he find out Kevin Durant was leaving? So then the conversation they have is Jamel says, now, if I ever left the show, how would I tell you? Would I make sure you found out personally by a text? Would I sit down with you? Would you find out on Twitter? And that's where – and Michael says, well, I wouldn't approach it that way. I would do this. So it's not the kind of bogus fake argument we see on so much of sports TV. It feels like you and I sitting at a bar if we really knew each other really well and having this – the organic conversation come out of it. That's right. when they're at their best. Right. Nothing like this podcast, which is completely rehearsed <laughs> and false. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's interesting. You can sense that too. And I suspect that that's a big part of their success is that there is, for lack of a better word, an authenticity to what's happening between them. 
I wonder, though, why you think people have had such a negative response. There are probably some obvious reasons and then maybe some subtextual reasons. That was also at the top of their mind when I talked to him. And Michael, you know, I, I quote him in the piece, and he actually said this about four different ways and said, Let me, let's just talk about why people don't like us, and then began to list the things. Clearly, a lot of people on Twitter, as we saw some of the responses to Jamel yesterday, don't like them because they're black. Um, some of the people on uh, Twitter don't like them because they once in a while talk about social issues. They're both people that are really interested in that. It doesn't actually show up on the six very much at all. Some people don't like what they've quote unquote done to Sports Center. Um, I think there's a whole spectrum of reasons. And by the way, I would, you know, let's say that those are pretty close to the top for some of the craziest Twitter reaction. If you get down to like number 100 on the list, I would say that making ESPN about Twitter and about social media does have a certain alienating effect on the audience. I mean, I think of like my uncles who are in their 60s, big sports fans, aren't on Twitter. They turn on a lot of ESPN and it's like, this is a digest of a world I don't live in. That's right. And I don't understand this. You know, I just, I'm just literally don't understand what they're quoting and talking about. It seems like in recent times at ESPN, there has been a marked attempt to reach a a more diverse audience, a very forward-facing approach. The launch of the undefeated over a sure. short period of time, um, the ascension of a series of on-air personalities, and you know, it's 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 pointed if not spoken, and the resistance that it has received has been notable and concurrent with the the ESPN layoffs that have been happening over periods of time, most recently, I think, uh, in the spring earlier this year, which you wrote about. How correlative are these things? Do you think it's just sort of the rise of the shit-posting Trump supporter, or is there some actuality (laughs) in, in the decline of the network relative to what they've done here? I think it's a whole bunch of things coming together. I think Trump is certainly in the background, if not the foreground, of all of it. But yeah, the layoffs... We've just there are a lot of reasons right now in the world for people not to like ESPN, and I think they all kind of come together in certain points and become one thing. The layoffs were big because, as people pointed out, they didn't go and say we're going to lay off the worst people we have at the network. They laid off people for a variety of reasons. But then this kind of poisonous idea was introduced that somehow the people were who were still at ESPN were inherently unworthy of being there. AKA Michael and Jamel in a lot of people's mouth. Oh, what are they? They must, you know, what are they doing there? Let's come up with a sinister reason they didn't get laid off. And I think it all kind of comes together. That is both political and it's about ESPN having kind of a reduced place in the media world. And it's just kind of random anger. Um, So I think probably a lot of those things are being mixed together. So you mentioned that Michael in particular is aware of the fact that they're not liked. Do you think that that is affecting the kinds of show that they're making every day? It's certainly in their heads. I think they're both very good at uh, when they get before a camera and think about what they want to do. They're both pretty good about tuning it out. I think it's back there somewhere. And when we say not liked, you know, we're talking about a very noisy, small segment of social media. Right. When they go to the NBA Finals, they are loved. Uh, you know, when they go out on remotes or go to the the fight in Vegas, like they did a couple weeks ago, they find it. In fact, Jamel told me I didn't put the find room for this in the piece, but they like to joke when they go to an event like that. See, white people do like us <laughs> because people are always coming up asking for selfies and stuff like that. But in the world we live in, social media weirdly becomes the dominant voice. Yeah, and you know, I I I don't think it's possible. I led with this 
you know, this scene where they make a really funny joke, you know, venturing out a little bit on the diving board there in the room uh, when they're when they're kind of you know going through the show uh, that didn't appear on the air. And and I can't help but think that that's in their heads somewhere as they're going through all this. Let's talk a little bit more about Jamel specifically because you spend a lot of time with her, and she's a fascinating person, really thoughtful, and. You know, I think simultaneously very known because she's been a writer and a very outspoken person for a long period of time, but she also has a fascinating life story. Who did you find when you when you went and spent time with her? She's. Um, I thought that people didn't really know who she was at all, and one one of the reasons I wanted to do the story is who is Jamel Hill. It's just the most elemental reason to do a profile. She's from Detroit. She grew up uh, with her mom uh, only. They were very close to the poverty line uh, or on welfare for most, I would say, large parts of her childhood. Uh, Her mom, as she told me, was sexually assaulted at one point when Jamel was very young and then entered this just horrible spiral where she couldn't be in rooms with the lights off and told me she still today does not like to be in the dark anywhere. She began using opioids, uh, which is now a big thing in in America and a big concern, I should say, in America. Uh, but back then, there weren't many resources to deal with that. And she would take Jamel around Detroit to buy drugs um, and, and score. And Jamel watched all this. And one of the funny things is when I was talking to her mom, you know, I would kind of tell this to her mom the story that Jamel told me. And, and her mom, Denise, would say, I can't believe Jamel remembered all that because she just didn't realize uh, what Jamel as a child was soaking up. She didn't. She just didn't, didn't realize it. And you know, Jamel at one point uh, got a television from her mom for, or from her grandmother. Excuse me, for her birthday, her mom stole it or took it, and pawned it and bought more drugs, uh, which eventually led Jamel to to leave the house altogether. So this is somebody who who has a very 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 difficult background. Jamel is very. Um, she's a person who uses the phrase a lot. Everything happens for a reason. She looks back at that with a lot of bitterness. Um, she sort of thinks that this stuff happened and it made me into the person I am today, and so that's okay. Uh, she didn't love it. I think she didn't realize at the time how hard it was, perhaps. But then she gets to become a columnist, and one of the most interesting things for her, especially now that she's part of quote-unquote liberal ESPN in the eyes of all these critics, she was politically all over the place as a columnist. At Michigan State, she offended every single student group, including the black student groups. And we had a Kelly Carter, her friend who writes The Undefeated, told me, I lost a lot of my black cred by being best friends with Jamel. And people would come up to her and say, has this, has this woman Jamel ever met Jesus? That was what they would say to her because she would pissing so many people off. I read an Orlando Sentinel column she wrote when Barry Bond said, uh, when he was being killed for PED, said, I'm a victim of racism. And Jamel would write a column, no, you're not. People are mad at you because of PEDs. They're not mad at you because you're black. Uh, we mentioned the LeVar Ball example. She did. She defended LeVar Ball for what he said to Christine Leahy. You know, she is not somebody who I would call a practitioner of a particular political line. Sometimes I think frustratingly so, maybe with her comments. Like, wait, wait, what does she? What does she think about this? What's undergirding that? Is it a, I go with my gut? This is what I feel is the right thing, and that's why I'm clarifying these opinions. An absolute self confidence mm-hmm. in her ability to look at something and come up with the answer. And how does that manifest it as a television personality? She's she slings opinions, and she knows she knows what she thinks. Um, I think she comes off on TV as very contemplative a lot of the time. One of the most striking things about her on television and in person, she doesn't sound slick. 
I mean, I think I talk to TV, to sports TV people as what eighty percent of my my work diet. You are the major domo, and a lot of times I feel like they are on a TV screen talking to me when we're doing the interview, going through all this. You know, they are literally talking to me like a viewer at home. Jamel never sounds like that. She doesn't sound like that on TV. She's not. She doesn't sound polished. I would say, and I and I use that word with with big air quotes on television in a good way. She sounds like somebody having a natural conversation rather than somebody you put a token into and they just start blurting out sports opinions. Uh, but beneath that is this absolute confidence in what she says and what she thinks. Do you think that this moment that she's having right now will somehow change her broadcasting personality or even necessarily the identity of the six? It's hard to say. I sort of doubt it. Um, she's somebody who's just been under a lot of pressure and criticism ever since she's been a writer because of the way she writes and because of the stance she takes. By the way, I should mention this. When she was at the Orlando Sentinel, the AP did a survey of all the newspapers in America. They found that she was probably, can't do a complete survey, but we found she was probably the only black female sports columnist in America. The only one at the time. Just think about that. And if you think about the stuff that came into her email box back then, the phone calls she got, some of the comments she received, this is another level, of course, but she's used to it. She gets it. Any sense of how she's handling the Sarah Huckabee Sanders moment? <laughs> I texted with her a little bit this morning. Um, she sounded like Jamel on text. I think it's pretty uh, funny that Jamel went to the White House media party last year with Barack Obama. Um, she, Barack Obama was a big fan of, of, of hers. And now she is being denounced from the same White House. Uh, so, you know, we have traveled full circle. <laughs> are, are there other examples of... Uh, the office of the president having knowledge of uh, sports broadcasters like this? I mean, setting well, aside maybe Bill Simmons' well, I was uh, hosting say, Barack Obama. I was going to say Obama knew them well. Yeah, yeah. Having a, I mean, I'm not sure that – we're not sure that Trump knows who she is. And I'm not sure that – I think they love to pounce on easy bait. And by the way, they changed the whole dynamic of this thing. There was a lot of pressure yesterday morning on ESPN to do something. Whether it was apologize, and by the way, the statement you read wasn't. People have characterized that as an apology. That was not an apology. No. I don't. Rem, I don't see the word apologize in there anywhere. Um, to do something, because it was how dare this ESPN host insult the president like this? Well, as soon as the White House weighed in, the power dynamic shifted because now it becomes whether you agree with Jamel or you don't. The White House is trying to dictate what journalists say, and it, Trump does this a lot. He takes an some, a winning hand and throws it away. And so now, you know, I saw people even say, I disagree with everything about Jamel Hill's politics, but I absolutely don't think the right, the Trump has any right to tell her what to do. It didn't take long for people to dig up uh, some old Trump tweets from 2014 and identify <laughs> that he had been calling Barack Obama a racist while he was, in fact, a television personality. While he was a TV star. So it's, it's quite a thing that happens. There's, there's a tweet for everything when it comes to our president. Absolutely. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll talk about Jamel's response and ESPN's second response. Hey, it's Bill Simmons. I wanted to tell you about Black on the Air, hosted by the one and only, the great one, Larry Wilmore. Even though he's a Lakers fan, I still like him. I think he's talented. But he has all kinds of guests on, from Neil deGrasse Tyson to Al Franken to Bernie Sanders. You name it, they're coming on. Pop culture, politics, newsmakers. And then at the beginning of every podcast, Larry does a little riff about whatever is either sticking in his car or things that he's enjoying. Although he has been enjoying much lately, the way the world's going. But uh, Larry will riff on 
anything. And then he has guests on. It's great. If you like everything else that he's done, comedy-wise, if you love this Comedy Central show, you will love this podcast. It is a medium that he has built for it. It's called Black on the Air, hosted by Larry Wilmore. Get it wherever you subscribe to your podcasts. So, you know, yesterday after the the press conference at the White House, Jamel issued a statement and also ESPN issued a statement. Just from my vantage point, I thought the second ESPN statement was unnecessary and a little bit strange. I'll, I'll read it really quickly here. Uh, Jamel has a right to her personal opinions, but not to publicly share them on a platform that implies that she was in any way speaking on behalf of ESPN. She has acknowledged that her tweets crossed that line and has apologized for doing so. We accept her apology. Um, there is something, I think, a bit paternalistic about that statement. And also, it, 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 it leads to a broader conversation about what ESPN is now yes. and how they can manage a, a conversation in this way. You know, I mentioned some of the other shows that have launched recently. Bomani Jones and, and Pablo Torre will, you know, have a television show. On that show, I suspect they're going to share some opinions that people are not going to agree with. So how do we demarcate what is inbounds and out of bounds here? couple of thoughts about this. One is that media Twitter is very different than it was even five years ago. Look at the way New York Times reporters tweet now about Trump, about their own subjects, the way they're kind of in the fray in a way that I think would have been a fireable offense at the New York Times 10 years ago. So that's really changed. And then number two is just, you know, ESPN has changed in a way that they've embraced debate culture, we said a hundred times. Well, when you tell somebody we're hiring you because you give us your great, filtered, fearless opinions. But by the way, you're not allowed to have an unfiltered, fearless opinion about the number one news story in the world and a guy who is tromping all over sports whenever he decides he wants to. You, you, you either have to not have an opinion or you have to pull a punch. That doesn't make any sense at some point. You just, you, it's just untenable. I mean, I've, I think we probably deal with that in a very small way at the ringer. You know, how do you tell somebody like, we love your literary voice. We want you to write for us. Oh, don't ever tweet about it. We'd ne- it just, it wouldn't work. We had to throw that towel in, I think, on November 9th. Yeah, I think so, if not before, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think those two things are really a problem here. And I think what ESPN is thinking is, we're going to have anchors who sort of talk like they would have on a tele, or tweet like they would have 10 years ago. I just don't believe that's tenable anymore. I believe the horse is out of the barn. I also believe it's different when you have a president who is being more outrageous than Jamel Hill on Twitter every day. You know, it you're never going to be more outrageous than Donald Trump is. So I just find that all funny. And you know what with ESPN, I think a lot of people were really mad at what they said. We work for a guy who got suspended for talking about Roger Goodell. So I actually took a slightly more sympathetic view to ESPN's responses, and I know that again, making Jamel apologize and all that stuff is—I I, don't—I don't personally support that. But when I read what they said, I thought this is pro forma. This is them dotting eyes and crossing T's, but not actually doing anything about it. Jamel's going to be on the air the next day, and off we go, and she'll talk about Trump again, and she'll tweet about Trump again. Maybe not in quite the same way. I sense a little bit of. Uh, irony, though, in the fact that the the richest topic for anybody to be talking about on First Take or anywhere else would be this issue. And and I'm sure that they are, in fact, avoiding it today, though I have not tuned in. Oh, yeah. They've got the biggest media story in the world. And if this were MSNBC, they'd have Katie Turr on a set today talking about it. Absolutely. What it's like to be demonized from the the podium by Donald Trump. Uh, Megyn Kelly would be talking on Fox about Donald Trump. 
right? To, this, to cite some other coincidentally female anchors that Trump, <laughs> his administration, has gone after. Do you think that there's any value left to that sort of illusory wall between the two things? I mean, we we heard it plenty, I think, from readers of our site and listeners of our podcast. Still do. When we dive into this stuff, there are plenty of people who are just like, get this out of my face. I don't. I come here to be not a part of this. I'm trying to get away from the loudness of the political conversation. Is there? Can you see a world in which ESPN leans more aggressively into these conversations? The hardest question to answer right now is, is part of your audience going to exit if you do lean into these conversations? I tend to think that because of the way ESPN is structured, the only answer is more political speech. Right? Uh, it's, it shouldn't just be Jamel Hill. It should also be other people. You know, Will Cain can can do his thing on Twitter. You're going to have limits, of course. I think I think Kurt Schilling probably <laughs> define what those limits are. But you should talk about that though a little bit. And there is a there is a, a secondary history of some conservative voices inside the network, and there have been some consequences there as well. Yeah, and I think I think what I was reading yesterday, refreshing my memory, was that Kurt Schilling actually. Did it three times before he was suspended. He had some some kind of social media post where he said he wanted Hillary to be buried under a jail. I mean, we're we're now sort of progressing beyond a political critique of somebody and into like I want something you attack know, weird. Attack. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, um, I think you know, I think there if you you can find all kinds of double standards, which is why I think, and it's so hard to police, which is why I think the answer is probably. Slightly more political speech. I know for a fact that Jamel and Michael don't want to do a political show at six o'clock. They they would rather not. They would rather not. They, there's plenty of sports stuff they can talk about. They they don't actually care. They don't they don't want to make it MSNBC. That that's actually I think one of the false ideas out here. They happily will have a show that's 95 percent about politics, and then they can do an Anchorman parody. Yeah, and have, then and Colin Kaepernick comes up, and they're going to of course going to talk about that like we all do. But I don't. I, they don't want a political show. And they certainly don't want to be political. I mean, well, I don't know if they don't want to. Maybe that's wrong. I'm not sure they wanted to be political figures at this level where you know they're being denounced by Trump's administration. In in your analysis of sports media history, can you think of a time in which the politicization and also the the demand upon people's opinions has ever been uh, more aggressive or or more in demand? Not quite like this, but because of my age, you know, and we missed the 70s. Yeah, I'm curious if 1968 was anything like what we're having right now. I think so. I mean, I think in terms of crossing the streams, it certainly was. Um, I still think this is an echo. Uh, This is this is the kind of this is still until we get, you know, really into find our Muhammad Ali's and people like this. This will still be the kind of middling reboot of the 60s. It's not not the 60s. Um, It's not the 70s. But the streams are crossing the same way. The pressure is there the same way. I'd also say this about ESPN. ESPN has tons of good journalists, as you and I know, that will happily take a a call from an irate owner or an angry player about something they put on the air or wrote for the website. They take fire every day. Right. That is a different kind of fire than the kind that Dean Bacay and Marty Baron are used to taking from the White House. And when that's a different kind of pressure. I'm not saying they're not up to it. But now it's a it's a different ball game when you're now squaring off at the White House. Guys in the New York Times and Washington Post live for that stuff. That is the way they are trained as journalists to dig in. And if they can get the White House, they're going to go get them. You know, get some news. I think this is new ground for ESPN, and I'm not sure they want to be dug into this fight. I saw it on Brian Stelter's newsletter: Trump versus ESPN. I mean, that that's a tough place for them. 
And I think it's going to be fascinating to watch how they try to handle that and grapple with that idea. I genuinely don't know what direction they'll take, but what what direction do you think will Jamel take? Where 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 will her, her career be a couple of years from now? She told me when she was in one of her lower periods at ESPN, when she couldn't get a show, she thought she may might go to cable news. That at cable news, of course, would reward her for talking about politics and social issues. Would want her to talk about that stuff. Would not care. Uh, as it doesn't care when Van Jones or you know a lot of lesser examples go off on on different riffs, I could still see that a lot of Jamel's friends still think she's going to wind up there one day, uh, which is not to say that day will be tomorrow or next year or the year after that. I think she's probably going to do Sports Center for the for the time being. I could totally see that. Um, I think you know what Trump has accidentally done is really empowered her, like he did with we mentioned Megyn Kelly, Kate Turner, people like that, because all of a sudden. It seems like she bothers the White House in some way. That's right. He has become a, a kingmaker of his enemies in a way, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And what is more empowering for a journalist when people in power are bothered by you? So I think he's given her a great, or Sarah Huckabee Sanders on his behalf has given her a great gift. And now she's kind of got to decide what to do with it. And, and what does she want to do? Does she want to write a book? Does she want to, you know, use all this sort of capital on air? Uh, and, and reorient the show a little bit, make it a little grapple with some of these things a little bit more frequently. I don't know. She could do all kinds of things. One thing I'm always curious about when you and I are working on a story or if there's a, a media narrative unraveling is what the lifespan of this thing is and when this will seem like old news. <laughs> yeah. You know, How long do you think this is going to run for? Is it over already? Clay Travis and those guys having stoked the ESPN is liberal thing gives this some legs because it's actually part of a larger thing. Um, it's not just a one-off. The, the Jamel Trump thing, I think, will probably blow over pretty quickly if it, if it hasn't by the end of today, the next couple of days, especially since Jamel doesn't seem to be addressing it head-on on air, as we said, like maybe a cable news network would, and kind of use it, right? It's just not ESPN's way to do that. But I think now that we're in this strange world of every gesture ESPN does is being scrutinized for political bias, um, that will continue to happen. It will, you know, certainly Jamel will be more scrutinized than ever before. All of ESPN's personalities will be. So I don't, I don't think we're at the end of this particular weird period where ESPN is somehow like CBS or CNN or the New York Times, the failing, failing ESPN, as Trump might put it. Um, I think we're just just beginning, and I think that's going to last for for the foreseeable future. Let's close with this. Talk a little bit about your favorite phraseology on a question. <laughs> Talk a little bit about the uh, cottage industry of alt-right sports media commentary, because I think that a lot of people who follow this closely believe that much of this conversation was driven, in fact, and a lot of ESPN's response was driven, in fact, by a few loud voices coming from a, a more conservative background or, or a, a, a presenting as a conservative background and their response to the way that ESPN has changed over the years. Do you think that that's accurate? And what do you make of the, the rise of a couple of those voices? Yeah, I think, it's, I, think it, I think they are the drivers of it. But then it nicely gets picked up by Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity. We've all seen that hilarious screen cap of Hannity's um, monochrome uh, conversation yesterday about, um, about the Jamel Hill crisis, <laughs> whatever we're calling it these days. <laughs> Because it nicely goes up and down the right-wing media food chain. It works for Breitbart Sports. Uh, it works for their various you know, people that find media bias arms, which deal with a lot of political media. And then it works on Hannity and Fox because it's, it's left-wing outrage, right? 
or quote unquote outrage, I should say. But that's what the, that's the way it feed it feeds it. I think when I talk to people at ESPN, their biggest puzzle is how to respond to it. As a as the worldwide leader, the, your first instinct is let's not do it because we just empower these people if we respond to everything. But then it reaches, I think, a critical mass where you just like you have to do something. You have to say something. You can't let you can't maybe you can't respond to everything. But if you don't do anything, then it just becomes there's a lot of people in the world, and we've seen in the last election that you can just repeat something over and over again, and a sizable number of people will believe it. And that's what they're struggling with right now. How do we deal with this? What do we say? Um, do we assure people that we don't have a political bias? Or do we just say something like, some of our people are here are liberal. Some of them tend to be conservative. They say whatever they want, and we just look for interesting people to put on the air. I don't know. and that, But that's – that's the puzzle, PR-wise, they've got to solve now. And that's what makes those statements so anguished. I, w- I would also say this. I think the way Clay Travis and those guys draw blood is not just by saying ESPN is liberal, by saying ESPN is political. Because when you affect a gloss of nonpartisanship, of being above the fray, then everything becomes, aha, gotcha, look at that, look at that. So the, hip- the quote-unquote hypocrisy that they think they're, that they say they're exposing – is not ESPN's liberal agenda. It's just that ESPN has a politics, right? As ESPN insists over and over again that it doesn't have a politics, right? As every media organization does, yeah. and always will. And this is this is just what all kinds of media, old media orgs have dealt with this in the past. But that's ESPN's challenge right now. Brian, this is your show, not mine. You should take us. Oh out. my gosh, I feel this is <laughs> this is my Spalding great chance to end the program. <laughs> Sean, thanks for joining me. Thank you, thank you for interviewing me today on my own show. Now we uh, the pleasure was all mine. It's uh, it's it's amazing. I feel this story will continue, and I feel we will have much more to say on, on the whole puzzle of ESPN circa 2017. Just one more beat and a beautiful pop song. Thanks for having me on, Brian. <laughs> thank you. 